Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we continue studying the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we always like to acknowledge first your presence here, the powerful Holy Spirit. Jesus, you said, if two or three gather together in your name, you're in the midst of that. So we pause to acknowledge that great truth that Christ is here. O living Christ, do your work in our hearts. We are your people. We want to be found doing your will. In Christ's name, amen. Well, of course, the most important part of any building is its foundation. Got a picture of just an average foundation of a home. You know, they're not much to look at, right? And they're kind of labor intensive and they're not impressive to the eye. But if you ask any builder, uh, it's pretty much the most important structure of a home. It kind of goes without saying. Because the purpose of foundations is to hold up and hold together the structure above it. And so um, a properly laid foundation, of course, provides stability. And it increases the amount of the abuse that a house or structure can tolerate and remain safe for those on the inside. Interestingly, Jesus, our Lord, will use the idea of foundations as a sermon illustration, a metaphor, if you will. Uh, and uh, most of you know what I'm talking about. He, he talks about a wise man. And at the end of a very long and beautiful sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, he closes his sermon with this. He says, you know who the wise man is? A wise man is... The person who hears my words, put it into practice, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like this guy who built a really neat foundation, solid rock, and that house could withstand the greatest storms. So the wind blows and the waters rise and the wind beats against that house, and it can stand. And of course, he's talking about the storms of life, but the storm ultimately of death. And that's the reason Christ came into the world, to conquer death on our behalf. And so he says, when the storm of death comes calling and you've built your house on the gospel, God's word is your foundation, your life is going to be standing in the end. He says, that's not the case with foolish people. And notice they hear, he says in the, in the illustration, he goes, they hear my word, they know the gospel, but they don't put it into practice. And I'll tell you what that guy is like, the guy who says, hey, I don't need a foundation. That's kind of a flat place to build. I'm going to build on the sand right there. And he says, I'll tell you what, that house goes up, Storms inevitably come, 
And thus, Storm, we have an appointment with one of those tornadoes. It's appointed unto men once to die. And then the judgment for the world, the evaluation for the Christian. But we all have to die and face that. And he says, the fool who doesn't put my word, the gospel, into place lacks that foundation. So it's a difference between I have two pictures. A house on a foundation. I looked around. Foundations are not seen because they're underground. So I found one with an exposed foundation here. It's a difference between a beautiful home that's safe come hell or high water, literally, and a home that looks like this. You know, just didn't do the foundation correctly. And you know, it's one thing to unravel in life. And Jesus promises if you don't live by God's word, uh, you will unravel. You will have troubles and calamity and hardship and all of that. But the hardship that Jesus came to spare us from primarily is eternal loss. And, and so it, it's one thing to, you know, unravel in this life, but the eternal consequences, wow. So thank you for that. The, the screen can go blank now. So with so much at stake, so much to lose, a human eternal soul hangs in the balance. And we've got to make sure that this foundation that Jesus is talking about, that we have that foundation, because a lot of people may think they do. In fact, in the Bible, it says that the people on that great day, the storm comes, their house implodes, and they're like, hey, didn't I proclaim God's word? Didn't I do the work of the ministry? And Jesus says to them, their house imploded. Depart from me, I never knew you. They thought they had a foundation. So it's always good to inspect your life to see, do I have the foundation of which Christ speaks that the life I'm building on can withstand the storms of life and the storm to come in the afterlife as well? Well, you know, the good news is that we don't have to be guessing. No reason for anxiety. Because, you know, if you were to inspect the foundation of your life, spiritually speaking, it, you do so by comparing it against the passage that we have uh, to look at this morning in Mark chapter 8. Um, it will speak really of the foundation of the Christian life, Christianity, the underpinnings of the gospel, salvation itself. If you've ever wondered, well, what is Christianity? What's the Christian life all about? What does it mean to be saved? Man, you came to the right Sunday because this passage is all about that. We'll be asking ourselves all the way through, am I building my life on a biblical foundation? And as Jesus said, whoever has ears, let them hear. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Now, we'll step back a little just to springboard forward. This was last week's text, right? Some of it. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, oh, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? The ultimate question that determines heaven or hell. 
Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Wow. <laughs> you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what could a man give in exchange for his soul? So if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, or the Son of God, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so that, my friends, is the passage that we will be taking a look at uh, this morning. Now, you'd be hard-pressed in the entire Bible to find anything more foundational to what it means to be a Christian or to be saved, than what is the kingdom of God all about, than this very passage. Uh, in fact, if Jesus <laughs> were teaching a course, he would use this, this very material and call it the foundations of Christianity, Christianity 1A. This is a diamond mine. So I find if you, if you study this passage, this foundational uh, passage, you find out that foundational Christianity really has three imperatives. Number one, note takers, you must understand who he is. Jesus is Lord. Number two, you must understand what he came to do. Die for the sins of the world, including yours. Three, you must understand what he expects of you. He expects you to pick up your cross and follow. So let's dive in. These are famous words. They're, they're often misunderstood. They're unpopular sometimes. Even his own disciples, as we see Peter, kind of shocking. Uh, this is not something that is uh, readily received, and so we're going to talk about this. But these words will open the door to eternal life. You will escape the wrath of God. You will stand in God's presence, blameless and faultless. You will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, just by having this kind of foundation laid in your very heart of hearts. And so we dive in, we'll isolate the text here for you, the first point. And as I mentioned, uh, the crux of last week's message is on the question to the crowd, their answer, their misguided answers, 
and the question to the disciples, which Peter answers and gets 10 gold stars. And so we really exhausted what it means to know who he is. So point one, you must understand who he is. And so I'm not going to repeat any of that, but I will give a couple illustrations of how important it is and just sort of uh, give us some context. And so... In order to be saved, you have to know the Savior, and you have to know who he is. Now, there are uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 says, Watch out, because there are many who are preaching a different Jesus. And so there are many who come in Jesus' name. There are many so-called paths to get to heaven. But not all paths save. And Jesus said that I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. So in your opening verses, if you missed last week, you should listen. Uh, it, uh, um, it is on the podcast there. It is, you can go online. You can get our app because it's been a whole hour talking about who he is. Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament. And so suffice it to say that the crowd, even though Jesus was so clear, you couldn't misunderstand him. I mean, the Old Testament, the Gospels, Jesus himself was saying, I am equal to God in every way. I am the God man. I have come down to lay down my life and die for the sins of the world. That's what the Old Testament said, born of a virgin, the son of God, equal to God in every way. The New Testament said he created it, all things, everything holds together in him. So we get it. Peter answered correctly. You are the one, the Christ, the chosen way to save us, and you are son of the living God. You are equal to God in every way. You are divine, just as the scriptures say. The fullness of God pressed into human form. That's who Christ is. So you've got to watch it. You're not going to be saved if you've got the wrong guy. And even if you think, even if you use the name of Jesus, like, I got a knock at the door. It was a couple months ago. Two very sweet Jehovah's Witness ladies, they, want, they asked me if I would like to talk to them about the kingdom of paradise <laughs> that was coming on the, uh, to the world. And I said, yes, I would. But I said, listen, let me just start the conversation off by saying your Jesus and my Jesus are very different. Mine's of the Bible. And yours came from the watchtower, right? So just so you know, I don't think the conversation will go very well because we have two different Jesuses, right? So who do men say that I am? So some men say your Jehovah's Witness believe that he is equal to Michael the archangel. So I have a problem with that. So I told her that. And she says to me, well, listen, where does it say in the Bible that Jesus is God. <laughs> so I put my finger on my bridge of my nose, which I've been known to do. And I just said, okay, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. John chapter 10, verse 33. John chapter 14, verse 9. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Colossians <laughs> chapter 2, verse 9. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. But I can go to the Old Testament if you want to go back there as well. And she said, I think we need to be moving on. <laughs> you don't want to talk to me? 
Those are such fascinating scriptures. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? If you say I'm Michael the archangel, how can Michael the archangel shed his blood for you when he's an angel and angels don't have blood? That's just my question, for starters. How can you say, well, he's the firstborn of God's creation if the Bible says by him all things were created? How can he be a created thing and the creator at the same time? I'm just curious, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. <laughs> and so I'm going to dive into Peter's answer and the blessing that follows. But let me give you one more illustration of this world that's gone crazy and thinks that they can identify and tell him who he is. Because what you're saying is unacceptable that you're a Lord and you have a moral code for us to conform to and I have to die to myself and love my enemies and do good who, to those who persecute me and turn the other cheek. That's unacceptable. So here, here's what I was doing. I, you know, I was a college instructor for eight years in the East Bay and I got into a conversation with one of my students. I was sharing the gospel with her. And she says to me, well, she interrupted me because I got to a part where I said, shall not perish. And she said, well, what do you mean perish? And I said, well, go to hell. And then she got that look on her face. And, and then I said something about, you know, an unacceptable lifestyle that God would want us to repent from. Right. And then I said something about, um, a, you know, something that she didn't like that not everybody is going to be saved. And she said, the God I believe in, oh, you've heard this before, the God I believe in would never just fill in the blank. And so they take all the offensive things that rub human pride the wrong way, and they just say, the God I believe in would never send somebody to hell. Well, actually, ma'am, the God I believe in would never send anybody to hell either. People send themselves there, but he died, and he's in front of them, bloodied and bruised and crucified and saying, please don't leapfrog over this, because there's no hope over a crucified son of God on your behalf. The God I believed in, so I said to her, where did you get this God you believe in? Well, she was hard-pressed to tell me. Right? Because she invented him. The God I believe in is a conglomeration of what the world would say God should be like. And, and number one would be you got to be a good person. you got to be sincere. you got to give the shirt off your back kind of guy. you got to be an upright, straightforward, pay your taxes kind of guy. Right? Not judgmental, you just love everybody, right? That's the God I believe in, right? Well, you know, if you're going to get to heaven, if you're going to know God, you're going to have to know him his way. And he said, I'm the only way to get to the Father in heaven. you got to come by me whether you like what I'm saying or whether you don't. You don't get to make up the rules, let me say, when you make up the rules, you don't know who he is. If you don't know who he is, you can't be saved. Let me tell you a sad, sad story. I'll move on to Peter's remarks. 
Now, in Izmir, Turkey, I just read this, maybe you read it too. A lot of thousands of refugees coming through there. It's a port city on their way to Greece as refugees to find safety. Mostly from Syria, but all over the place. Thousands of people. And, and what you need to get to make sure you make it and survive the harrowing journey across the Mediterranean there, you need a life vest, right? And so here's a picture of a guy who barely made it, but he made it, and thanks his life vest was really helpful. Some despicable human beings who wanted to make some fast cash. What they did was they, they made counterfeit life jackets. And instead of going for 130 euros, $140, they were going for 20 euros, $35, $30. And so hundreds of them drowned because they bought the fake ones. Here's uh, from the news article. The fake life jackets are made of backpack material and filled with sponge. And because sponge is water absorbing, it drags people down and causes them to drown, Turkish life vest producer told the news reporter. Wearing the fake jackets may be more dangerous than wearing no jacket at all, he added. And so my heart breaks. Thank you for that slide. My heart breaks for that and spiritually speaking, with greater ramifications than a physical drowning is a spiritual perishing because it's eternal. That's what the Bible says. And people will put on their vests, I'm a good person. I get the shirt off my back. I never harm anybody. They think that's okay because that's the God they serve only to find out when the waters of death are rising up, they're going to wake up estranged from God because being a good person isn't going to cut it when the Son of God has to bleed out and die on your behalf. Trust me, if there was any way you could be good enough, Christ wouldn't have had to go through that. But the sheer fact that Christ had to go through such an agonizing, excruciating, by the way, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion. <clears throat> because he had to be stripped and whipped and beaten and mocked and spat upon and then killed, ought to tell humans once and for all is not about being a good person. It's about having faith in Christ who paid it all for us. Once and for all, get that foolish notion that if I do more good than bad, then God will accept me. It is not biblical. It's a false life preserver. So he says, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, my Savior, my only hope, my God, my King, my flotation device. But he's got the real deal. And every flotation device, spiritually speaking, that's real has this stamped on the back. Jesus is Lord. That's the passcode. I mean, if you get to heaven and there's a gate, which, no, <laughs> it doesn't really work that way, all right? Uh, but if there were and there was a passcode, you could just punch it in. J-E-S-U-S-I-S-L-O-R-D. Mm, 
the gates open up. Apparently, they have electronic gates in heaven there. <laughs> it opens up for you. He says, who do you say I am, Michael the Archangel, a prophet of Islam? They tell you, yes, we believe in Jesus. He's a prophet. Peace be unto his name, our Jesus. He's not... Yes, you could get away with saying he was a prophet of sorts, but he's the living God in a human body. So half a truth, as I said last week, is a whole lie. <laughs> Amen. Get the name right and know who he is, because that's foundation stone number one. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Yeah. Now to the blessing here, because Peter nails it. How do we know Peter nails it? Jesus affirms them. And he says, you're blessed in front of everybody. This probably made Peter very happy because he doesn't always hear such accolades. Uh, this, is, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And so he says, you're blessed, man. You, you hit the jackpot. Bing, bing, bing. You get it. <laughs> you know. So he's, what's he saying? Jesus saying, Peter, this realization that I'm the Lord, that I'm equal to God in every way, that I'm the Savior of the world, this didn't come from you. You didn't connect the dots, nor did anybody on this earth or any earthbound philosophy enlighten your mind, but only heaven whispered in your ear, how blessed are you? That God, who is God of billions of people and apparently very busy all over the world, would take time to go into your mind and open your, your, your heart and your soul to the truth. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the road that leads to death and destruction, and hordes of people going that way. But you, for some reason, you heard the gospel, you wanted to be opened, so he opened you so that you could know who he is, the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the blessing. That's the blessing. You don't learn it in a humanities course or a think tank or Congress didn't figure it out. The United Nations still kind of stumbling, right? Uh, you're not going to get this information from a telescope in a classroom, under a microscope, or a Petri dish. You're not going to find it philosophizing by a fire and trying to figure things out in shadow form as Plato. Not going to happen. He says, the only way a human soul can understand heavenly realities and truths is if heaven breathes on you and opens you up and gives you new birth. When you get new birth, you can understand truths which are spiritually discerned. You can't discern them in flesh and blood. Charles uh, Spurgeon put it this way. If all you know of Jesus is what flesh and blood has come up with, then it's brought you no more blessing than the ideas of the Pharisees who remained a part of their adulterous and unbelieving generation flesh and blood oh my god wouldn't do that that's a flesh and blood revealed that to you i don't want anything 
to base my soul on anything flesh and blood reveals, right? The gospel doesn't come from this world. Where does the Bible come from? It doesn't come from man, but holy men of old, carried along by the Holy Spirit, pen in hand, and spoke and wrote as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. He said, this is by far most importance. Know this. The Bible doesn't come from any man. This is a God-initiated salvation. And so he gets um, an accolade for that. So he's going to say, your name is Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Let's talk about those famous words. Not used to that. (laughs) So a little wordplay is going on in the text here. He says, okay, wow. He says, Jesus, you're God in a body, and you're going to die for me. And he's getting it. That's what those titles imply. So he says, hey, your name is Peter. Petros. Rock. Your name is Rock. How fitting. And on this rock of your confession that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the foundation upon which God will build his church. Now you see, Jesus uses two different words for rock. One guy wrote this about, well, I'll just read it. If Jesus meant to say he's building his church on Peter, as our Catholic friends believe, first, how unstable of a foundation any man would make (laughs) to build a church upon. Second, Jesus' intentions I get it. Jesus changed the noun from Petros to Petra, and by doing so, he clearly indicated that he was not referring to the person of Peter, but to something else, a foundation, the confession that Peter had just made that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the truth that no devil in hell can undo and a truth that will carry the believers of that truth through the grave unscathed. And so, right, so the Catholics look at this and say, see, he's building on the first pope, Peter, right? And so uh, if that were so, this is what he would do. There are two different words here. Petros, right? And Petra. So you have two different things. Jesus could have said, if he was building on Peter, he could have said, uh, and on this Petros. Your name is Petros, and on this Petros. But he changed the word to say, I'm talking about something else. So that just brings clarity that uh, he is building not on a person, not on human institutional religious leaders, but on Jesus Christ himself. That's the foundation of our church. Amen? Amen. So the first time the Bible uses the word church is right here in your passage, ecclesia, which means to call someone out of a home or a place to join an assembly. And so when we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, we surrender our lives to him and he becomes the foundation the foundation of your soul, the assurance of your salvation, the true understanding of who Christ is. When you say, he's my God, he's my Lord, he's my king, 
That is the passcode. Now, now let me just prove it to you with Romans chapter 10. Take a look at this. Here's how you know you're saved. That if you confess with your mouth, you got it, Jesus is Lord, right? There it is. He says, who do you say I am? Jesus? Am I a prophet? Am I Elijah? Am I Michael the archangel? No, 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 no. You're the Lord. And there's only one Lord. It means God. You can swap that out for God. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is God and believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, that Jesus is the Lord and that he's alive. He's not dead. That's what that means. Then because of what's going on, then he says, for it's with your heart that you believe and you're justified means just as if I never sinned. That's an easy way to remember that. It means to be pardoned. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But see, the magic, <laughs> it's not in the lips here. Jesus is Lord, oh, so I'm saved. No, there's been a work in the heart that has trusted on this living Christ. And because you've done that from the overflow and the truth of what's gone on and the insight out, it comes and Jesus is Lord. And so you don't go around talking about Michael the archangel. You go around talking about Jesus as Lord. Do you know Jesus as Lord? That's a sign that you are saved and will never be put uh, to shame. So praise the Lord for that. And, and, and with the Son of God as your foundation, come on, no wonder he could say, hey, they're going to kill some of you. Matthew chapter 10, they're going to kill some of you. And he, they killed 10 of the 12. They're going to kill some of you, but don't worry, not a hair on your head will be harmed. Because why? Because Jesus is Lord. He is God, and he's the foundation of my soul. So what do I have to fear? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he says, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. The gates was an idiom about power because your military commando stations were at the gates. Uh, town city hall was at the governance was at the gates. So it's an idiom to say the power of. So all the power and councils of hell and all the power that death, the grim reaper coming at you on steroids, cannot conquer God as Lord in your soul as the anchor of your being. Not going to happen. Amen? That's encouraging truth. And it's born out here, isn't it? 2,000 years uh, Theologians and those who look into these matters say that the last 10 years, 90,000 Christians a year have been martyred for the last 10 years. 900,000, close to a million people have lost their lives to these people. Jesus' words are so much more rich and deep and profound because they were facing the heat. Do you know... In at least a third of the world, if you say Jesus is Lord, you can get your head cut off. So these words matter. They gather around and they read these words and they live and die and bleed on these words. 
One scholar from Gordon-Conwell Seminary on the East Coast said that for 2,000 years, the estimation is 70 million Christians have been martyred. 70 million people. But I want to tell you something. Jesus said the gates of hell, Hades, the power of death and the grave. Two millennia later, Christians are being executed, fed to the lions, crucifying us today, beheading us today, blowing up churches today, banning the Bible, prohibiting evangelism, banning prayer, taking down crosses, removing the Ten Commandments. Oh, such a terrible thing to have the Ten Commandments out. Forbidding manger scenes. Oh, that would be terrible to drive into a town and and see a story like Christ coming into the world to save sinners. Oh, that would be so offensive. So we have to get rid of that. Christmas songs. You're not allowed to sing Christmas songs about Jesus. Yes, about the Christmas bear. But no, you can talk about the Easter bunny on Easter to your fourth graders, but you better not say Jesus or you'll get fired. Maligning, slandering, mocking, murdering pastors, imprisoning Christians, legislating against all things Christian. And guess what, folks? Jesus' words are true. Guess what? There's a church here today. Guess what? The gospel's going out all over the world. And guess what? Souls are being saved today. And somehow, the truth that (laughs) Jesus is Lord, that came to Peter, right there at Caesarea Philippi, has gone 2,000 years with all of hell and all of death and all of Satan's angels trying to stop it. It got to you 2,000 years later. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the Lord, and the gates and the power of hell and the grave will not prevail against me. Amen? Amen. That's a good thing. That's an encouraging thing. So you must understand who Jesus is and Jesus is Lord. And if you got Jesus as Lord, you got no worries. Secondly, God wants us to also understand what he came to do. So not just who he is, but what he came to do. And this was a first century shocker, uh, especially to his disciples, right? They just had the wrong idea. So we'll take a look at those verses now. Then he began to teach them that the son of man, I'll explain that, must suffer many things, be rejected. He'd be killed, that three days later he would rise He spoke plainly about this. Peter couldn't understand it. He took him aside and and, um, rebuked him, corrected him. Oh, no, we can't have this. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes him. And then uh, you have the words there right in front of you. Let's talk about it. So now things are changing. We're six months out from the cross, just so you know. Golgotha in the Hebrew means place of the skull, Calvary, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So the, uh, the plan to die is not new. It was before the foundation of the world. So this wasn't just like something that went wrong at the end, but the Bible says that Jesus, this thought was in the counsels of God before there was a world, Revelation uh, chapter 13 and verse 8. 
I've often said this quote, Jesus wasn't killed for his good work. It was his good work to be killed. Jesus almost laughed when he said, man, you come for me in the garden. The guards came to take him away. And he, and he almost laughed. It was like, oh, you're showing up here with, with chains and clubs. Are you kidding me? No one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. You're not in charge. I'm in charge. And I came to do the thing that I'm doing. Father, John chapter 12, Father, the hour is here. It's time for me to be crucified. Shall I say, save me from this hour? No, because it was for this hour that I came into the world. He came to do this. He knew it. The angels knew it. But the disciples, whoa, wow, this was a real shock. Now, uh, Jesus calls himself the son of man. He gets that title from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's having a vision of the second coming. And he sees Christ coming in the clouds with great glory. And so he says, man, to describe that, he says, I see the Lord coming in glory, but he looks like us. He looks like a human being. Another way to say that is a son of man, a human what is God looking like a human? And so he called him the son of man. That became the title for the Messiah, that he is God, but he looks like one of us. Well, go figure. Why is Jesus' favorite way to call himself the son of man? Because he was delighted. He's got the God part down, right? But he was delighted to slip into an earth suit, to pour himself into a human body to save us. To have flesh and blood like us, to have a heart, to have a back that can bear the stripes that we deserve, to have a face that could receive the spittle, that could grow a beard so it could be plucked out and have a reputation so he could be mocked and have arms that could be laid down, stretched out and nailed to a tree, to a cross. He had to have a heartbeat and lungs with air so that he could die to pay the penalty that was for us. And so he's delighted to say, yes, I'm the son of man. I was born of a woman, but conceived of the Holy Spirit, the perfect God man. And so we see the God man came to save us. You know what happened there in the garden, right? By one man's disobedience. Sin entered the world, and then death through sin. And since all people sin, death spread to everyone. But look at God and his amazing plan. He says, what if I went down there and became human? You know, perfect, sinless. I could kind of trade my life for theirs. I could take all their sins on me, pay the debt that they owe, right? And that's really why he tasted death for everyone and why he took on a body. Now, for me, I can't prove it. This is just what I think. I just really think he's giving folks an option because we didn't get one in Adam. The Bible says that when Adam and Eve died spiritually, they didn't fall over when they ate and died. It took them a thousand years. To them, that was a tragedy, by the way. But Adam and Eve died spiritually. They, their spirits disconnected from the source of life. They were estranged from God and the Bible says that you were in them and died with them. Now, you didn't have a choice, did you? 
So was the plan, okay, let them all be born, and then we'll give everybody a chance to say something, to do something. Who do you say that I am? Do you want out? Oh, I'll make a way out for you. Now, the angels don't get redeemed. Why is that? They knew fully <laughs> what they were doing, and they fell, and there's no redemption for them. But us, why do we get a second chance? Well, we were in Adam. We didn't ask to be born. That's like we showed up like, wow, what am I doing here? Well, it's a long story. You were in Adam. You died in Adam. But you know, how fair is that? So why don't we just let you be born, and now I'm going to come to you. Do you want to stay dead, or do you want to come alive? That's called being born again when you hear the gospel. So he's giving everybody a chance. So they say, I didn't ask to be here. I didn't ask to be born. So you can't deal with me. Ah, you didn't ask to be born, but I asked you, as I said last week, I asked you to be born again. I'm giving you a chance. You didn't have a chance in Adam. So I'm sending you a new Adam. We're going to do a real redo, do-over. <laughs> We're going to do a do-over. The first man, you're connected to him, you die. Now we've got a second creation, a new creation, a new man, a second Adam. You connect to him through faith, oh, you'll live, you see. So you get an option, you get a choice. And the choice starts with who do you say that I am? And the second understanding is what do you think I came to do? Give you a lot of money, make you so happy, give you a palatial estate. That's what some preachers will tell you. But the founder of Christianity tells you that I came to die and I've got a cross for you to follow behind. And so this, this wonderful revelation that he would die for the sins of the world, this is where the greatest love story starts. You know, in the Old Testament passages, there's plenty of them about the suffering servant uh, so they didn't, that could have mitigated the shock a little bit for Peter if he just remembered Isaiah 52. I mean, there's an Isaiah 50 that says the Messiah, and the Messiah is God to them. They know this. I offer my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery or spitting. That's Isaiah 50. And then it gets even more specific. Isaiah 53, we read it this morning. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced. What are you talking about pierced? Psalm 22 says they pierced my hands and feet. A thousand years before they had Roman crucifixion. He's already talking about being crucified. The rabbis were so confused by a suffering servant and a conquering Messiah that they said maybe there are two messiahs. They couldn't reconcile his first coming to die for the sins of the world and his second coming to conquer. The bad guys set up a kingdom where only goodness dwells to renew the earth and to reign and rule forever. They couldn't do that and set Israel free and honor Israel. They wanted him to come, just skip over this cross scary part and go fast forward to the good part, right? But Jesus says, no, no can do that. No can do. So let me show you the Christ was sacrificed line here. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those 
who are waiting for him. Did you know, ladies and gentlemen, that this is the verse where we get the term the second coming from? You see, they couldn't reconcile it. So Peter is going to have a meltdown. Let's talk about that. He's talking openly, Jesus, that is, with his disciples. And Peter takes him aside and begins to reprimand him. Heaven forbid, Matthew tells us. Heaven forbid, Lord, he says. This will never happen to you. Jesus turns around and looks at his disciples, then reprimands Peter. Out of my way, Satan. You're thinking only from a human point of view. Uh, Only what you want to happen, not what God wants to have happen. So... Let's talk about this. Have you ever heard the Yiddish word uh, chutzpah? (laughs) Who gets the chutzpah award in the Bible? It means you have a lot of nerve. Well, Peter gets the chutzpah award because it's a lot of nerve, even though you're in shock and your intentions are good, to take the Son of God aside and get the pointer finger going. And the word for rebuking Jesus is the word rebuking demons, same word. So you know it's loud and it's firm and it's serious. So he takes the son of God aside. He, you know, he's kind of in shock. He loves the Lord. You know, he's been thinking, we're going to Jerusalem six months out. There's going to be a throne. And he's thinking all the Old Testament prophecies about Israel being honored and Christ on a throne and a renewed earth. And the lion laying down with the lamb and no more war. This is what the guys are thinking. And then he says, heads up, we're going in. The Gentiles are going to take over. The bad guys are going to look like they win. They're going to mock me, spit on me, and then kill me. No worries, three days, and uh, I'll come back to life. But, (laughs) and he takes him aside and says, God forbid. God forbid this should never happen. Let's talk about this. Well, I imagine Peter now with the finger up like this. And I imagine Jesus very strongly and firmly, gently grabbing his hand and pulling it down and looking him with a blaze that only God's eyes could muster. And he's looking at him and he says, no, Peter, you listen to me. But here's how he does it. Nothing gets a guy's attention if you're Jesus and you referred to them as the devil. <laughs> I just think the whole bunch of them, I could just see them going, what? What did he just call Peter? Or so it seems he called Peter. I don't think he's calling Peter that. I think he sees somebody that the rest of us could never see. He's outing the presence of the evil one who's using Peter's words anointing, if you will, Peter's words with the violin, oh, don't go to the cross, because that is going to mean his, Satan's, ultimate demise. So here's the point. Satan is near, and he's using it. He cannot possess a Christian, a Christ follower, or loves Christ, nor do I think he's whispering in Peter's ear. I don't think he's channeling the devil, please. He's reacting as a human being who loves Jesus, doesn't want to see him have to pick up a cross or himself have to pick up a cross and follow. And the devil is there helping it work, manipulating. And I'll tell you what, he had some degree of success, didn't he? 
Why does Jesus suddenly go on attack mode? And look at Peter, past Peter to the one in the back going, oh, please, we're all afraid. Isn't there another way? And Jesus says, stand down, devil. We're going through with this. You see, I think it touched Jesus hard. He loves Peter. He loves those guys. He despised the shame that was coming. And he rebuked the enemy. But look at what he says. He says, Peter, you're coming at this from, God, from man's, what you want, what you think. The God you believe would never, right? But oh, we got to do things God's way, even when it hurts, even when it's crazy, even when it's like, like the bad guy's winning. That's what it looks like, Peter. That's what it looks like. But you're going to die, and they're going to humiliate you, and this is going to be terrible. Yes, for three days, it's going to be, you know, you're going to be hurting, but you're going to see me again. I've got a plan. You've got to trust me. So for me... It gives me pause to quit thinking about just what I'm thinking, my way, human interest, what would be best for me, because isn't it true that the devil could be like using that to hinder what God really wants to happen? So if I'm always protecting and hedging my bets, kind of doing things with my logic, then I'm going to fall into the trap where Satan can kind of play the violin behind my natural inclinations and I forfeit what God could have given me and a greater blessing. Amen. So let's continue on and wrap up now quickly. And finally, um, we must understand who he is. Jesus is Lord. We got to understand what he came to do, die for our sins. And then we have to understand our part. He has what he expects of us. And so we take a look at that. He calls the crowd and he says, hey, it's not just me. If anyone would come after me, you must deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? And if you're ashamed of me in this life, well, when I see you in the next life, I'll be ashamed of you. It's a two-way street. So let's talk about this as we wrap up and then take communion together. So finally, um, we have a role to play not in our salvation. Uh, John chapter 6, the crowds are all over Jesus saying, what do we have to do to please God? What's the work that God requires for us to be saved? And he says, plain and simple, believe. This is the work God has required of you. Believe in the one that he has sent. And so it's faith, grace. It's a gift of God. It's not by your own good works. So here's an invitation not to be saved they're already saved. Here's an invitation to follow as a disciple. Now, if you're truly saved and the Holy Spirit comes inside of your heart, you want to be discipled. And this is the way Jesus says to find the joy, find the blessing, is, is to, first of all, he says you'll have to deny yourself. Well, as soon as you become a Christian, what does that mean, to deny yourself? It doesn't mean give up something for Lent. It's not talking about what you deny yourself. It's not talking about that. He's talking about 
God takes the place of the throne in your heart, and now God comes first, others come second, and you come third. So you have this renunciation of a self-centered life in Christ. So if you want to follow me, get used to telling yourself no, because your life is sort of what? You told everybody at your baptism, I, the old me, died. The old me, dead, gone, invisible, covered over. What came up? Oh, it's the new me. He raised me to new life. That's what you're telling everybody. That's what the life is. I died. So when he says, if you want to be my disciple, first of all, you've got to understand that I'm in charge. So, you, you know, you feel like gossiping? No, sorry. Well, we don't do that where I'm from. And you're coming to be a citizen of heaven. You want to satisfy the, the greed or the lust? Doesn't work that way. Somebody smack you upside of the head? You want to beat them up? Doesn't work that way. You're going to have to, in the upside-down kingdom where I come from, to get even with someone, you love them. When they respond in a harsh way to you, you give them a soft answer. If you want to get rich, be a giver. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, go low, serve, and be the least, because the least who's serving the most is the greatest. Do you see so when he says, first of all, deny yourself, this is what he's talking about. It's a Christ-centered life instead of a me-centered life. You know, you can't just sit there and say, you know, somebody hurt me, so I'm going to uh, hold a grudge for years. And the Lord says, do you want to be forgiven? Unless you forgive others, you will not be forgiven. Jesus' words. Do you see how you're denying yourself the desire to hold a grudge or to uh, yield to a temptation or to have that bad attitude or to criticize somebody unfairly. All of life is one big renunciation of self. And now the Holy Spirit, who's on board, is prompting us to other-centeredness, to holiness, to goodness, to godliness. But try doing that without the help of the Holy Spirit, and you'll never be able to do it. It's hard enough with the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's what he means by self-denial. And then he says, pick up the cross. Now, picking up the cross has two quick things. There's a public understanding of this and a personal one. Now, the cross publicly is what I mentioned. Ten of them were going to have to die. I think one of them gets the cross, Peter, and Peter says, you're going to crucify me? Oh, I'm unworthy to be crucified in the, as Jesus Christ was crucified. So they said, we'll crucify you upside down then. So he says, listen, folks, here's, here's what it is. John chapter 15, we're almost done. If the world hates you, hello, <laughs> keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, they love you. But I called you out of the world. That's what the word church means. Called you out of the world. That's the word. <laughs> but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they persecute you. So he says, listen, they didn't receive my teaching. You're saying what I said, right? I wasn't very popular. You're not going to be very popular. 
right? If you look like me, act like me, talk like me, teach like me, you're not going to be well-received. So socially, get ready to kind of be rejected and marginalized and pushed out of the city limits with me, not, not in, in a humbling way, in a mocking way. That's what he says publicly. And, and life bears that out. We are the most unpopular people on the planet. We are. Oh, you believe that oh, only Jesus is the way to get to, to heaven. Yeah, that's what he said. I had nothing to do with that. Personally, I'm just repeating. Because I'm repeating what he said. He says, could you guys stop taking it so personally? They're reacting to me. I'm the one who started this. He went on to say, if they call me the devil, which they did, and he said this to us, if they call him me the devil, you think they're going to burst into applause when you come into a room? And there's no need to be more obnoxious than you already are. So we don't want to try. <laughs> I didn't mean that the way it sounded. <laughs> there's no reason to go out of our way and be insensitive and rude and tell everybody, you're going to hell. I mean, what is that? But uh, he says, pick up a cross. Now, on the inward side... It's what I already covered. The cross you bear every single day, you bear a cross. Every single day, I suffer. Every single day. Don't you? Every single day, I want to do something that I cannot do because I'm a Christian. Every single day. I have to correct an attitude, a thought, a desire. Every single day. For 40 years. Some days are easier than others, but every single day, they're minor, major, medium, low, medium, and high. But there, there's a sinful nature that constantly wants to manifest. And what's the answer if you put those things to death? So he says, the way, listen to me, and I'm almost done. The way to find life and joy and freedom is through death of that old tyranny of sin. The way out of that to find who you really are, who you're supposed to be. The joy of forgiveness clean conscience, living right, talking right, thinking right, being the person God made you, it's to a cross. And the devil wants you to see, oh, it's pain and bloody and terrible and shameful. Oh, but the resurrection, the resurrection is an inextricable part of the cross of dying. You have to die, and then you'll be resurrected. The life God wants for you is all about joy. It's all about fun. It's excitement. It's good. It's wonderful. But it doesn't happen without a cross. Those are the things that get in the way of that. So he says, listen, you have an option in your text. You can save your life from persecution. You'll still be popular at school. You know, just, just. Renounce me. You don't don't talk to me. You'll save your life from persecution and mocking and and uh, the cross bearing publicly and in your own heart. But if you save your life, that will be a loss of life. He said, but if you lose your life for me, you'll become who you'll find out who you really are. You're not that broken kind of bitter, kind of closed-minded, can't love and all of that. 
Do you have to lose that and find the life? And you do that through the death and resurrection of the cross. And then he asks the question. Now he's going for the jugular. He's saying, and by the way, you may be out there thinking, whoa, you're asking a lot. Man, that's hard. He says, well, is it worth losing your soul over because it's so hard? He says, what would you give? What would a man give? Right? What does he say here? He says, thank you. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his own soul? So what if you had all the money, you had the island resort, the billions in the bank, the wine, women, and song, the cars, the planes, the boats, the palatial estates, in everybody's eyes, you're a success, you're president of the universe, all right? And then you wind up in hell, where Jesus says it's eternal, he uses the word torment, he uses the word fire, he uses the word darkness. Jesus is speaking, so, so whatever it is that you want to save your life from, would it be worth ending up in an eternal place called hell? He's just asking. And then the second question is kind of like it. He says, let's say you end up in that place. What would you give to get out of that place? You would give it all back if you could. And you certainly would stop doing the thing that got you in trouble so that you didn't get saved and you got placed in hell for you would those things you now you used to love you would find detestable but he says even if you could give it all back the whole world it wouldn't be enough because it's Christ's blood that saves you so he says you can't even give it for an exchange for your soul you have to find Christ and then finally he says look two way street man you think you can go through life ignore me snub me use my name you know with all kinds of terrible cuss words and then die and say almost basically a good person says no if you were ashamed of me in this world when the lights go on the angels notice the angels are there in the focus of the the known universe it's going to be quite a scene and every eye he says don't you want to be honored and sort of applauded well done good and faithful servant you don't want to be an object of contempt, right? So the way to do that is to not save your life from the discipline of knowing Christ. It's to let go, lose this sinful life, and take on a new life, which is identified with the cross in Christianity, and all the offensive things that all the people in the world are going to laugh at you about and marginalize you and think that you're, um, you know, a homophobe or kind of backward or stupid or a hater, all of that nonsense. You can save yourself from that. Or you can lose your life and become that (laughs) and be exonerated later. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. Thank you for these words. They stir our hearts, Lord. They make us think and they challenge us, Lord, to come closer and to take you seriously and our commitment to you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Now as we enter a time to reflect on your death on our behalf, Let it be rich and powerful and transformative, we pray.
In Christ's name, amen. Well, I've been doing this a long time, and folks, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There's not a lot of planning, right? We just go as it goes. And nine times out of ten, when we get to Communion Sunday, it's about the cross. And I don't know how he does that. He's good at math, man. He is a multitasking God. And so here we've got the inspiration to do anything hard in the Christian life is the blood that he shed on our wretched behalf. And that inspires me. I could do anything when I think of Jesus on the cross, dying and saying, Ross, this is for you. Man, I'm, get out of my way because I'll do whatever he wants, right? When I've got that right there. <laughs> so this is how it works. If you're a born-again Christian, that's when it's meaningful. You take communion. Um, the bread and the cup, they symbolize what Christ did on the cross for us and ingesting that like a meal gives you more than physical life, but eternal life. And so if you're a born again Christian, you don't have to go here regularly to accept and participate when you're served, uh, hold on to the bread and the cup. And then after we worship, they'll come back and we'll take it together. Uh, if you don't know the Lord, you're not a Christian. It just, it doesn't make sense because it's communion is about expressing outwardly an inward grace that's happened. Now, let's say you're really stirred up and you want to become a Christian and you wanted to take communion. Oh, a simple prayer. God, forgive me of my sins. I belong to you. I know who you are. I know why you came. And I know what you expect of me. Done. And then take communion because it's going to mean something. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.